This is hell. Coming to you from Second Story Studios above Carrie's Lounge at 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. It's Tuesday, August 1st. Yes, listeners, it's August already. I'm Will Lippin, producer on This Is Hell, filling in again for our host Chuck Mertz. Filling in for happier non-surgical reasons, uh compared to the last hiatus. Chuck and his family are on their annual and hopefully restorative and accident-free trip to northern Michigan's lake country for the next two weeks. I haven't heard any news from Chuck other than he was having trouble connecting to the internet. Oh man, what a good problem to have. So I assume no news is good news, that everybody is uh, having a good time disconnecting from electronic communication. Man, that sounds great. I will be your guide through hell for the next couple of weeks until Chuck's return to the interview booth on the other side of the glass from me on Monday, August 14th. Actually, that will be on the other side of the glass from Cat. You can welcome him back in person at our next office hours, uh, which won't be held till Wednesday, August 16th. Again, that's at Gary's Lounge in the Westridge neighborhood of Chicago at 2251 West Devon Avenue. Office hours run from 6 p.m. to usually 10 p.m., sometimes later, sometimes earlier. Kind of just depends on, uh, on who rolls in and uh, how festive everyone's feeling. There will be no office hours this week or next. I might pop in at the usual time out of habit, but I'm not sure. Should this transpire, this would be a completely unsanctioned drink and think, the consequences of which neither the show nor I can be held responsible. You've been warned. However, when you do come to office hours, when it officially returns, or if you happen by carries anyway, Be sure to check out the art show upstairs, right here in Second Story Studios, above Carrie's Lounge. This is Art, that's the name of the art show, features a wide range of art for your perusal and possibly even purchase. Neither the show nor Carrie's Lounge take a cut from these art sales. That's right. 100% of the proceeds go to the artists. How cool is that? You can check out a range of items from sculptures, collages, to photography, to painting, and even a pretty elaborate 
I think pretty awesome uh, functioning crown made from a whole found cat skeleton. Come by and check it out. Where else can you see that? This week and next, we will feature six different interviews with the prolific historian and listener favorite Gerald Horn. These interviews were recorded between 2018 and 2023. For those of you who aren't familiar with Horn or his work, he's a pretty big deal in the discipline of history, especially in radical historiography. He is the John Jay and Rebecca Morris Chair of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's written extensively on issues of racism in a variety of relations with uh, other structures of life, such as labor, politics, civil rights, international relations, and war. He's also written extensively about the film industry. He holds a PhD in history from Columbia University, a JD from University of California, Berkeley, a BA from Princeton University. So he's done some school. Dr. Horn's interests in terms of teaching are wide-spanning and include courses in civil rights and U.S. history through film, as well as graduate courses in diplomatic history, labor history, and 20th century African American history. These are all very distinct fields from one another, uh, so I cannot understate how impressive this is. I mean, I cannot, <laughs> I cannot overstate how impressive this is. Uh, this year he won the Franz Fanon Lifetime Achievement Award from the Caribbean Philosophical Association, who remarks that Horn is a longtime activist in anti-racist and working class struggles whose research and scholarship played and continues to play an important role in bringing to the fore dimensions of struggles for freedom along axes and intersections of class, gender, and race. Um, they mention him alongside other heavy hitters in the black radical tradition, such as um, Herbert Aptiker, Manning Marable, Cedric Robinson so he's in good company uh, he's the author of more than 30 books and over a hundred scholarly articles and reviews uh, much of which has been featured on this show and uh, you'll be hearing all of that for the next two weeks six episodes in total will include our interviews with Horn in chronological order. Yesterday's episode, that is Monday, July 31st, 
featured an interview with Horn about his 2018 study published by Monthly Review Press titled The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, and Capitalism in the 17th Century North America and Caribbean. Um, If you haven't already listened to that one, I highly recommend going back and checking that out. Um, Truly fascinating stuff. Today's episode features a 2019 interview on his book published that same year by international publishers titled White Supremacy Confronted. U.S. Imperialism and Anti-Communism versus the Liberation of Southern Africa from Rhodes to Mandela. That's a long time, folks. It discusses the findings of the next episode, rather, uh, Wednesdays. Discusses the findings and insights from Horn's 2021 uh, American Book Award winner, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. That's a 2020 book published by Monthly Review Press. It's sort of a prequel, if you will, to the interview we featured in the previous episode. And the next week, as we continue this Gerald Horn marathon, Monday's episode turns to sports history and its intersection with race in his 2020 work from international publishers titled The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. We then return to the long reach of the United States' so-called peculiar institution, even though it was a core institution in uh, the development of uh, American society, politics, culture, and its economy. Uh, As seen through the history of the Slaveholders' Republic of Texas, In his 2022 book, and uh, this is one of my favorite recent histories uh, that's been published, I must add, titled The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism from International Publishers. And then finally, wrapping up the Horn Marathon next Wednesday. We revisit our most recent interview with Gerald, recorded on July 10th, 2023. In it, he discusses with Chuck his most recent work from international publishers titled Revolting Capital, Racism and Radicalism in Washington, D.C., 1900-2000. So I hope you like history, listeners, because you're about to get a big old dose of it. And speaking of history, coming up after the interview, 
is the first installment of Rinaldo Magaldi's The Worst of Rotten History, or as I've been calling it to myself, Rottenist History. These segments are Rinaldo's hand-picked favorites. I don't know if that's the right word, but uh, that's what my brain came up with right here. Uh, from his uh, series of documenting some of the worst and most overlooked episodes from the human past. The second installment of this will drop next Tuesday. Tomorrow's episode, as well as next Wednesday, will feature a hand-picked Best of the Moment of Truth by Jeff Dorchin. Tomorrow, in recognition of the Supreme Court's continued lousy decisions, Jeff recommends thinking of Scranton and Scamuel Scrotus Scalido as a composite past radical Catholic fascist. Sorry, a composite of past radical Catholic fascists. I very much look forward to this one. No past inside the present this week since Sebastian's on vacation, but we might have a new one on Monday. I have not confirmed that, so stay tuned. Certainly hope for one. Also coming up after the interview, of course, uh, I will reveal your answers to this week's question from hell so far. I apologize for being a day late posting these to Discord and Twitter or X or whatever the hell that apartheid Nepo baby permanent teenage boy nincompoop likes to call his vanity project these days. So the Facebook crowd got a head start on the rest of you. Sorry, but life isn't fair because this is hell. This week's question from hell is, what's the creepiest thing about wherever you travel to regularly? What is the creepiest thing about wherever you travel to regularly? You can submit your responses on Patreon, Facebook, Twitter, or Discord, and doing so will get your response read on air, and uh, it has a chance of being selected as our favorite of the week, which entitles you to a free piece of any This Is Hell merch uh, on our website at thisishell.com. We have a bunch of a few new items in, so... Take a look, and if you'd like to get a jump start on the week's question from hell, like uh, the listeners we heard from on Monday, who get access to the question from hell the Thursday before the week even starts, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash thisishell to support the sort of bong-ripping journalism and in-depth interviews you'll be hard-pressed to find anywhere else. So without further delay, then, let's turn to Chuck 
and Gerald Horn's discussion of Horn's work titled White Supremacy Confronted U.S. Imperialism and Anti-Communism versus the Liberation of Southern Africa from Rhodes to Mandela. The work and the discussion explores the intersection of white supremacy, Cold War politics, and global liberation movements in Southern Africa as the struggle against colonialism and apartheid oriented itself within the larger conflict between capitalist and socialist states. The ANC and Solidarity movements won major but compromised and incomplete victories against regimes of racial and economic exploitation. This is hell. Disavow yourself of everything you know about the fight against apartheid and white supremacy in South Africa, other than the system of minority control was a heinous crime against humanity, and prepare your mind to be blown because returning to This Is Hell is historian Gerald Horn, author of White Supremacy Confronted, U.S. Imperialism and Anti-Communism versus the Liberation of Southern Africa from Rhodes to Mandela. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. As the entire month of July is Listener Appreciation Month here on This Is Hell, culminating in our Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show on Saturday, July 27th, we want to thank Calvin for suggesting Gerald Horn be back on our show. Calvin told us he recently saw that Gerald has two new books out, Jazz and Justice, Racism and the Political Economy of the Music and White Supremacy Confronted. Calvin says last year's This Is Hell interview with Gerald was one of my favorite of 2018, and it looks like either of these books could be great for an interview. Uh, Thanks, Calvin, and with apologies to Gerald and to all the jazz fans who are listening, we'll be discussing white supremacy confronted with Gerald today. However, I do want to get your jazz book for my nephew who is going to college beginning in the fall at University of Michigan to study jazz percussion. So I'll still want to get that book from you. And I just want to mention one other thing. Uh, Gerald, you may remember, was on our show last year to talk about his book, The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, which was chosen as one of the best books to be featured here on This Is Hell. So it's a real pleasure to have Gerald back on. And we really want to thank Calvin for suggesting we have him return. You write that it is difficult to understand the decolonization of Southern Africa if one ignores contemporaneous events in North America and indeed the global correlation of forces more generally. Could the decolonization of South Africa have happened without the events that took place in North America? Because that suggests previous events in North America may have been playing a role in South Africa's colonization as well. So how much was colonialism as well as decolonialism in South Africa a North American project? Well, keep in mind that with the beginning of settler colonialism in the Cape, the southern tip of Africa, in 1652, that there was a close link between the origins of settler colonialism here in North America. In fact, North American slave traders who were going around the Cape to Mozambique, then a Portuguese colony, to ensnare and enslave Africans and bring them back to toil in North America, oftentimes stopped and were assisted by their comrades in the city that is now known as Cape Town. Keep in mind as well that if we fast forward to the beginning of the 19th century, when Britain 
out the Dutch from control of the southern tip of Africa. It's the Haitian Revolution, 1791 to 1804, that ignites a general crisis of the entire slave system that could only be resolved in it with its collapse. That is to say that in southern Africa, a la North America, there was slavery. In southern Africa, the enslaved were not only Africans right there sharing the land with the Dutch or Afrikaners, as they called themselves, but also the Afrikaners enslaved the Mozambicans and also went as far afield as what is now Indonesia, because Indonesia, as you know, was also a Dutch colony. But with the Haitian Revolution, you found that Britain felt that the better part of wisdom was to move expeditiously to uh, oppose uh, the slave trade, then abolish slavery in its rich colonies, Jamaica and Barbados, and then put pressure on the Afrikaners to do the same, who then began to try to escape British jurisdiction by moving uh, further east and further north uh, from Cape Town. And that leads ultimately to the end of the 19th century with the so-called Anglo-Boer War, a settler's revolt in Southern Africa, not unlike the settler's revolt in North America in 1776 that eventuated in the formation of the United States of America. Interestingly enough, in terms of the Anglo-Boer War, you had Euro-Americans, white Americans fighting on both sides of the equation. Now, to go further into the 20th century, it's interesting to note that the system of apartheid, this hateful, spiteful system of neo-slavery and Jim Crow on steroids, which was not formally inaugurated until 1948, the blueprint for apartheid was drawn up in New York City by the Carnegie Corporation of New York, which subsequently has apologized, which is probably too little too late. But part of their purpose and intention was to build a wall between poor Afrikaners and poor Africans to prevent a kind of class unity between and amongst them that could challenge the ruling elite. And so with apartheid, you see the organization of state-controlled corporations and a kind of affirmative action for poor Afrikaners to uplift them in the economy and to give them a so-called stake in the system so that they would distance themselves from their poor uh, African uh, counterparts. Now, you mentioned in your preparatory remarks the connections between African-Americans and Africans in South Africa. I think it's fair to say that up until the Red Scare, up until the Cold War, that is to say up until the post-1945 period, the relationship was rather close. But post-1945 and the onset of the Red Scare and the Cold War, you saw that the NAACP, the leading organization amongst black Americans, found it necessary to embark on the road of anti-communism and to purge its ranks of those real and imagined communists, including their founder, W.E.B. Du Bois, by the way, would help to found this organization, the NAACP, in 1909, whereas the African National Congress, which had come into existence in 1912, a three scant years after the formation of the NAACP, decided to take a different route. It tightened its relationship with the South African Communist Party, and in fact, uh, I'm not the first historian to point out that Nelson Mandela, inaugurated as the first democratically elected president in South Africa in 1994, was probably a member of the South African Communist Party uh, for a good deal of his adult life. And I should also say that it's interesting to look at the different ways in which people in the Jewish community were treated in North America and in Southern Africa. 
In North America, as you know, for reasons that I can go into if you're interested, there was a smoother path for those of Jewish descent, despite anti-Semitism, despite the lynching of Leo Frank in circa 1915, a, a Jewish-American man in Georgia lynched on rather spurious reasons. Whereas the Africana, despite the title of my book, White Supremacy, in some ways, the Afrikaners were Afrikaner nationalists first and white second. That is to say, they sought to block the migration of other Europeans who are not of Dutch descent to the southern tip of Africa, even though they were outnumbered 10 to 1 by Africans. And more particularly, they particularly tried to block the migration of those who were Jewish who were fleeing pogroms in Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, in the first few decades of the 20th century, and of course that accelerated in the 1930s with the rise of Hitler. And what this serves to do is to drive many Jewish people in South Africa into the arms of the African National Congress and their ally, the South African Communist Party. In fact, a close comrade of Nelson Mandela was the Lithuanian Jewish man, a man of Lithuanian Jewish descent, I should say, Joe Slobo, who was the head of the South African Communist Party, and also for a while the leader of the armed wing of the African National Congress, this close relationship between the ANC and the South African Communist Party obviously complicated the ability of the ANC and Mandela to win support here in North America. And that does not begin to happen, in fact, until the collapse of the Berlin Wall, November 1989. And the last apartheid leader, F.W. de Klerk, chooses that moment to negotiate with Mandela and the African National Congress because the then socialist camp of Eastern and of Eastern Europe was a major bulwark of support for the ANC. As, as noted, the United States was hotly opposed to the ANC, seeing it as a kind of communist front, to use that term of Europe. And so Mandela is freed in February 1990, uh, weeks after the collapse of the Berlin Wall. His organization, the ANC, is unbanned, as is the uh, South African Communist Party. Uh, thereby is, takes place uh, lengthy uh, four years of negotiations culminating these elections in 1994. Now, the book also deals with the larger uh, regional context, the liberation struggle uh, in Angola, a, once a site for the ensnaring of Africans to be enslaved in North America. In fact, the leading prison in, in Louisiana to this very day is co coincidentally enough named Angolan State Prison. Uh, you would find, uh, if you were able to investigate, that a goodly number of the black people you pass on the streets of Chicago or of Angolan descent, whether they know it or not. And the turning point in that particular struggle was the intervention in 1975 of Cuban troops who defeated the apartheid military on the battlefield raising the specter that the Cuban troops would not stop there, but would march eastward into what was then called Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, and forcibly oust the white minority regime there, and perhaps go on to Pretoria and forcibly oust the white minority regime there. Uh, this helps to induce a sense of compromise and realism uh, in the races, forcing even the United States to bend to reality. U.S. President Ronald Wilson Reagan is forced to uh, execute the Comprehensive Anti-Apartheid Act of 1985, despite the fact that he had sought to veto this act. This was due, this is, that is to say, this uh, Comprehensive Sanctions Against South Africa and Apartheid 
to this massive solidarity movement that particularly gripped campuses, not only campuses from the Atlantic to the Pacific, but also should also say campuses right there in your backyard, in Evanston, at Northwestern in particular. But also, it was a product, that is to say, this anti-apartheid movement of unions, particularly the West Coast longshoremen who com- controlled the docks from Seattle to San Diego, refused to unload South African merchandise, and this helped to compromise the business relationship between the United States and South Africa, which was quite uh, significant. Uh, most A goodly number of the Fortune 500 corporations, including GM, 3M, uh, Ford, the rubber giants of Akron, they were all uh, based in South Africa as well, taking advantage of the cheap labor there, which was obviously giving U.S. corporations an incentive and an inducement to shut down their plants here and move to the neo-slavery sites of South Africa. So it was understandable why unions would be opposed to South Africa. All of this pressure then leads, finally, to the forced, compelled retreat of apartheid and colonialism in Southern Africa by 1994. So uh, how much was the anti-apartheid movement, either here in the United States or the anti-apartheid movement in Africa, to what degree did the U.S. view it as a national security threat because of its connections to, its links to the Communist parties in China, in Cuba, and the Soviet Union? Well, I think you've hit the nail right on the head. That is to say that the uh, opposition forces in South Africa and in Southern Africa more generally were faced with the point that the regime the minority regime in Pretoria, the minority regime in Salisbury, uh, now Harare, Zimbabwe, were quite close uh, to Washington and the North Atlantic Treaty Organization and the North Atlantic community more generally. They were not only close politically and diplomatically and militarily, but also in terms of kith and kin, bloodlines. And I wrote a book on Zimbabwe some years ago, and I pointed out that uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson, the U.S. president, from 1963 to 1968-69, was not the only U.S. leader who had kith and kin in what is now Zimbabwe. Uh, That is to say that Zimbabwe uh, was a British colony, and just like the United States of America was founded initially, originally as a British colony, because of these close relationships between the minority regimes of Southern Africa and the North Atlantic community, this this forced their opponents to turn east, if you like. That is to say, they were trained militarily in what was then East Germany and also in the Soviet Union. If they were wounded uh, on the battlefield, they oftentimes were airlifted to hospitals and sanatoriums in Soviet Union, particularly Sochi, where you might have noticed uh, Vladimir Putin spends a lot of time. I've already mentioned the fact that with regard to military assistance, the turning point was the introduction of Cuban troops uh, in 1975 into southwestern Africa. Uh, That helped to induce what then U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger called a trauma. That is to say, the U.S. authorities were traumatized by the gumption and the audacity of the Cuban troops under the guidance and leadership of then uh, Cuban President Fidel Castro Ruz to intervene uh, militarily, uh, this causes the United States to redouble its efforts 
to destabilize the entire socialist camp. And of course, they received that opportunity in 1978, 1979, uh, when in Afghanistan, still a bleeding sore, still a site for U.S. military conflict, uh, the U.S. authorities decide to weaken what they consider to be a pro-Soviet regime in Kabul, Afghanistan, and thereby aligned with forces who were congruent with the man now reviled, I'm speaking of the late Osama bin Laden. And this conflict is also taking place in the context of the so-called uh, Sino-Soviet split. Now, on the one hand, uh, the China, uh, under the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, did train certain ANC cadre militarily. Certainly, uh, China was close to the eventual victors in Zimbabwe, speaking of the ruling party there, ZANU-PF. But at the same time, uh, China, for various reasons that need not detain us here, uh, was quite hostile to Moscow. And that led China in 1975-1976 to align, believe it or not, with Washington and apartheid South Africa against the intervention of Cuban troops backed by the Soviet Union. Now, this is in the context, as you know, of this entente worked out by U.S. President Richard M. Nixon with Mao Zedong circa 1972. This leads to a massive payoff uh, to China in terms of foreign direct investment that's created this juggernaut. And just a few days ago in the Financial Times of London, there was an editorial by a former Harvard professor which said that that deal has led to the creation of a so-called Frankenstein monster in the form of this uh, juggernaut that is the People's Republic of China. Uh, and of course, we're now embarked, it seems, on a new Cold War with China, although it's fair to say that the seeds of that new Cold War, believe it or not, uh, are often to be found in southwestern Africa and Angola. There were so many things in that question that I want to follow up on. Uh, first, real quick, um, was supporting apartheid or supporting communism a false choice, and were activists forced into that false choice? What what explains their inability to get around that false choice? Yeah, I think it was a false, 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 false choice, and the ANC and the Liberation Forces said explicitly it was a false choice. That is to say, the choice was really between are you going to support racism and colonialism and neo-slavery, or are you going to oppose racism, neo-colonialism? and neo-slavery. And fortunately, on this side of the Atlantic, uh, millions of students and union members decided that whatever the consequences, they were going to oppose apartheid and colonialism in Southern Africa. Now, I do think that there was a kind of authentic, if you like, anti-communism in the United States of America. By authentic, not necessarily meaning that it was a justifiable ideology but meaning that people sincerely believed in that ideology. And therefore, when they noticed that the ANC was close to the South African Communist Party, when they noticed that the liberation forces in Angola were close to the Cuban Communist Party, when they noticed that the liberation forces in Mozambique were close to Eastern European communists, uh, they blanched and railed against this prospect. But that led them, I'm afraid to say, into a kind of devil's bargain, into the arms of the most noxious elements of the 20th century, speaking of the proponents of racism and neo-slavery in Southern Africa. 
You write that lubricating the path for the deep penetration of U.S. capital into the South African region was the mass ignorance of North Americans when it came to Southern Africa. Could people in the U.S. fairly claim that they simply didn't know about apartheid or even what it was, uh, what it was, let alone its effect on people's lives? Prior to the anti-apartheid movement, uh, was there a U.S. media blackout on the deprivations of South Africa? And can Americans say, hey, we just simply didn't know? Sure. I mean, there, there is a sort of an enforced ignorance, even today, uh, with the Internet and the ability to ascertain what's going on on any corner of the planet in a millisecond. Uh, you can still find people who say that they don't know what's going on in Afghanistan. They don't know about a prospect of the U.S. war with Iran. Uh, they don't know about the U.S. Co- covert actions in Syria. And likewise, uh, before the advent of the Internet, I think it's fair to say that there were people because perhaps of their own uh, proclivities, who did not know about uh, what was going on in Southern Africa. But one would think, say like in Chicago, you have all these black people walking around the streets. You think that that might pique curiosity as to how they arrived in North North America, uh, for example. And given the rampant discrimination that they face in Chicago and across these United States of America, you would think that that would pique their curiosity about what is happening to black people in Southern Africa. And for millions, as noted, uh, their curiosity was piqued. For millions, as noted, that helped to activate them into energized protesters. But alas, I'm afraid to say that there were millions more uh, who did not notice what was going on to their detriment. A lot of people here in the States now, in retrospect, I think everywhere in the world would say that they opposed apartheid, that it is a very simple decision to make. You write how there were those who were supporting apartheid back in the States because they were afraid to stop supporting apartheid because they were afraid it would offend white political sensibilities, considering the concern over offending white political sensibilities and the concerns for being anti-communist. How difficult of a decision was it for people in the U.S. to make to be opposed to apartheid? Well, you have to remember that there were very important political figures who were pro-apartheid. You know that Senator James Eastland of Mississippi, the late James Eastland of Mississippi, one of the old bulls of the U.S. Senate, has been in the news lately because... uh, potential Democratic nominee for president, former U.S. Vice President uh, Joseph Biden, uh, boasted about his relationship uh, with the segregationists, with the support of apartheid. Now, I'm sure that Joseph Biden felt that given the power wielded in Congress by James Eastland and Jesse Helms of North Carolina and Strom Thurmond of South Carolina and Richard Russell of Georgia and many other countless others who supported apartheid, that uh, it would, uh, w- it would have been unwise to offend them unnecessarily in order to, in Biden's mind, make progress on other fronts. Now, I think if you understand Biden's relationship to these apartheid supporters in the Senate, you can understand why those who wielded less influence and had less job security, perhaps, than Joseph Biden, uh, did not want to offend the sensibilities of pro-apartheid elements in the wider Euro-American community. 
particularly as noted in your previous question, the mass ignorance about Africa generally, and Southern Africa in particular, that was part of the tapestry of North America and the United States of America. And that did not begin to break down until the anti-apartheid movement began to take to the streets and become much more disruptive and then began to capture headlines and captivate TV cameras and basically get in the face of these pro-apartheid elements, that helped to change the entire calculus and calculation. You mentioned how in 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. appeared at the UN and Secretary of State Dean Rusk was worried. Rusk lobbied to ensure that the uh, cleric would, quote, confine his public testimony entirely to South Africa and not veer into criticism of the domestic United States racial situation. Rusk was blunt. I have serious reservations about the desirability of Dr. King's appearing before the U.N. in view of the danger that our domestic racial policies will be made the focus. There were all there was also uh, U.S. opposition to the U.S. Uh, well, U- opposition to the U- to here in the U.S. to apartheid. Uh, there was concern that that was going to bring attention to U.S. racial inequities. Did apartheid ever bring that focus? Because I haven't seen much improvement in conditions of black lives here in the States since South African apartheid ended in 1994. Did Rusk really have anything to worry about? Well, yes and no. I mean, I I do think that as of that moment in 1963, recall this is before the Civil Rights Act of 1964, kind of Magna Carta, in terms of the breaking down the walls of Jim Crow and segregation, including in Chicago, by the way, and the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which was similarly a kind of Magna Carta. The United States was deathly afraid that Dr. King and others so situated would link up with the African National Congress, which in turn was tied, as noted, to the Cuban Communist Party and the then Soviet Communist Party, and that this would compromise U.S. national security. As of 1963, Dean Russ's fear seemed to be real and authentic. Now, of course, with 2020 hindsight, looking back from 2019 and looking back at the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, the crumbling of the Berlin Wall in 1989, the fact that as we speak, uh, for many, 25 years after democratic elections in South Africa, even though there has been uh, progress in terms of providing water to those who did not have it before, providing education to those who did not have it before, there is a kind of disappointment by many uh, in the uh, progress uh, against apartheid in his legacy in South Africa. And likewise, as your question suggested, uh, there is disappointment uh, and uh, alienation, if you like, with regard to uh, what has happened, what has befallen the black American community as of 2019. However, uh, looking in, in 1963, Dean Russ did not have a crystal ball And from his point of view, sitting where he sat in Foggy Bottom at the State Department in Washington, D.C., this seemed to be a real and authentic fear that he had that Dr. King would link up with these global forces, from his point of view, to the detriment of U.S. national security. 
but that it didn't seem to have happened. That didn't seem to really bring attention to racial inequities here in the United States. Why didn't the campaign, even in the 80s, why didn't that campaign, and I I went to a couple of anti-apartheid rallies. They were focused on what was happening in South Africa. The Vast majority of the people at these uh, college rallies were white people from privileged backgrounds. Why is it that that group of people never brought attention to the racial inequities here in the United States? Why did they simply focus on nothing? It seemed, at least to me, and I could be wrong, but it seemed to me they only focused on South Africa. Well, I think that as a person who happens to be melanin rich, happens to be a person of African descent, (laughs) this book... uh, details my own association with the anti-apartheid movement in the 70s and the 80s. Uh, it included many black people, in, including on some of these campuses that you don't necessarily associate with black people, including Princeton and Columbia, University of California at Berkeley, uh, for example. Uh, we always strive to draw a connection between suffering in North America and suffering in Southern Africa. Now, I don't think that those who were courageous enough to march and to protest should be castigated because our message was not necessarily accepted with equanimity by those who were apathetic or unconcerned or bored. I think that those who should be castigated are those who were apathetic, unconcerned, and bored with the prospect of struggling against apartheid and struggling against uh, Jim Crow. And its legacy. Now, I mean, what you're you're opening a, a much wider discourse, and unfortunately, I don't think we have time to get into. But I think if we did, we'd have to look at how in the United States, even amongst radical sectors, the very term settler colonialism, which is part of the last book we discussed between yourself and myself on these airwaves, the very term settler colonialism is not part of the common, ordinary, radical political discourse. Even though where you're sitting a few hundred years ago was land controlled by indigenous people. And I think that that speaks once again to the apathy, the lack of concern, and quite frankly, the retrograde politics, uh, even by those who consider themselves to be progressive. And that helps to compromise the anti apartheid movement, just like it helped to compromise the movement against Jim Crow and his legacy in the United States of America. You write that we do not need to go as far back as the 17th century when the process that led to European settlement in North America was linked to a similar process at the southern tip of Africa to identify connections between these regions. In 1953, Hayden Raynor of the U.S. State Department was instructed that the surplus population of Europe should now be settled in Africa, not the U.S., since the ruling class uh, centered in Pretoria was seen to need bolstering. Quote, the early American settlers were able to suppress the Indians, Raynor was told, so why cannot the British, with that assistance of the other Europeans, do likewise in Africa? To what extent, then, was South Africa a site of U.S. white supremacy being expressed as a foreign policy? And what is the state today of white supremacy's impact on U.S. foreign policy? Well, certainly... It's important to point out, as I point out in the introduction of this book, that in the 1920s, the U.S. diplomat uh, sternly instructed his comrades in Pretoria that they had three, three choices. They could exterminate the indigenous population, as happened in North America 
in, in, in terms that I described a few moments ago, uh, they could migrate, uh, they could leave. <laughs> that is to say, which they were not willing to do, certainly not in the 1920s, or they could assimilate. They could engage in what was called miscegenation, that is to say, intermarry uh, with the majority population, which their racism prevented them from doing. And so, in some ways, the Afrikaner elite was stuck because, as noted, they tried to block European migration. For example, Jewish people fleeing the pogroms in the 1920s and 1930s and the early 1940s in Central and Eastern Europe. And with that decision, they basically determined that they were going to be outnumbered, and which meant that they would have a difficult road to hoe in terms of struggling against Africans armed by the Soviet Union. Now, with regard to today, it's interesting to note that in the recent elections that took place a few weeks ago in South Africa, that the ANC retained its majority, albeit a reduced majority. But there were two other intriguing electoral factors. One, the rise in support of Freedom Front, which is a kind of neo-apartheid policy, which, by the way, has received shout-outs from the 45th U.S. president, uh, who apparently resonates with the claim, the false claim, I should add, that there's a kind of white genocide taking place uh, in, in South Africa, which compelled the conservative uh, Australian government to retreat from his usual anti-migration uh, uh, and anti-immigration psychosis to say that it, it would welcome with open arms those to find us white who are fleeing South Africa. And on the other hand, you had a uptick in support of the so-called economic freedom fighters, who, unlike the ANC, uh, takes the more striking point of view, not only with regard to reclaiming the land uh, taken by the invaders beginning in 1652, but also I think it's fair to say that the EFF, the economic freedom fighters, uh, have a point of view that could easily be characterized as, quote, anti-white, unquote. And this is creating a very explosive combination and I dare say that if there is not uh, expeditious activity in terms of redistributing the wealth in South Africa, and I would say Southern Africa more generally, that that situation is a tinderbox waiting to explode. And of course, uh, you could make a similar claim if you so chose with regard to North America. You mentioned the dilemma of the dominant Afrikaners. They were not as successful as their counterparts in North America in constructing a synthetic whiteness that could have had a better chance of extending white supremacy than the existing Afrikaner nationalism. What is it about what you call North America's synthetic whiteness that makes white supremacy here even stronger than in South Africa? Well, that's a very good question. And I, I think you know, I just completed a manuscript on the 1500s, and one of the reasons why we're sitting here speaking English as opposed to Spanish, and of course, sponsoring Columbus, they had first movers advantage, is in, in terms of settling or invading North America. And England at that time was a minor power on the fringes of Europe, was that the Spanish regime tried to impose a religious test on settlers. You could become an African conquistador if you pledged to be a Catholic, a good Catholic. And, of course, a lot of the early enslavement in Spanish settlements was of the indigenous population. This is all taking place in the context of this raging war between Catholics and Protestants, with London being Protestant and Madrid being Catholic. 
the scrappy underdog that was London basically outflanked the Spanish by moving away from religious tests. After all, in 1492, the Spanish not only sponsored Columbus, they expelled the Jewish community. London moved towards a kind of pan-Europeanism, which we would now call whiteness, extending uh, benefits to those who could be defined as white. Ultimately, as you know, Persians and Arabs could be defined as white in North America. And that proved to be the winning ticket in terms of why we're sitting here in this self-proclaimed richest country on earth, uh, speaking a language developed in Northwest Europe. And so that helps to explain why whiteness and white supremacy has been more potent in uh, North America than in South Africa. And then, of course, there's the point that as a superpower, uh, that is to say, as a leader of the so-called North Atlantic community, the United States of America had to make more compromises in order to confront and combat the onslaught, as they saw it, from the then socialist camp, thereby forcing an agonized retreat away from Jim Crow in 1954 with Brown versus Board of Education. Uh, South Africa did not have as many global obligations, and therefore they thought that they could stick it out just with Afrikaner nationalism backed up by Washington and the North Atlantic community. But alas, they made a miscalculation. So uh, how did North America become convinced, put the ANC's communist ties aside to oppose apartheid? What logic eventually beat out the fear of communism, which seems so pervasive? I think it was the logic of protest. It was, as I talk about in the book, the Free South Africa movement, which is ignited during the height of the conservative regime of Ronald Wilson Reagan in the fall of 1984, a mass protest at the South African embassy in Washington, South African consulate, attracting celebrities. It became quite fashionable, if you look at my book or if you were around at that time, to be arrested and detained. And the anti-apartheid sentiment spreads like wildfire, at least the petition campaign uh, from the Atlantic to the Pacific. It leads to the introduction of sanctions legislation, uh, which we are, were able to force a significant percentage of Republicans to back over the veto of Ronald Wilson Reagan. That is to say that uh, it's not so much that the United States uh, willingly saw the light with regard to apartheid. It's more that we forced them to retreat from dug-in positions because they felt that they had no alternative but to retreat. And I think that that's a lesson for our struggles today in July 2019. And you point out the support that the ANC, then a communist group, uh, was getting from the Soviet Union, was getting from Cuba, and even uh, some support from China. With the collapse of the wall, with the end of the Soviet Union, how did that affect the fight globally? against white supremacy? What leverage was lost by those fighting white supremacy around the world when the wall fell? Well, first of all, the ANC uh, had a church with many pews. Uh, One of the pews was occupied by the South African Communist Party, but it it really wasn't a, a communist organization, although it did have communist leadership and communist participation. And I think it's fair to say that with the collapse of the socialist camp, uh, this skewed the internal workings of the ANC 
towards those who did not have a pro-working class bias. Uh, that is to say, the present leader of the uh, ANC and the present president of South Africa, one of Africa's richest men, uh, Cyril, Ramapo- Cyril Ramaphosa. Now, Cyril started off as a mine workers union leader, but he still is a multi-millionaire, some say a billionaire. And South Africa, in particular, a country of only 55 million, has found it difficult to engage in a policy of redistribution of the wealth when after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the socialist camp, there's hardly any backing globally for redistribution of the wealth, uh, not least in Southern Africa. But with this uh, ongoing Cold War with China, and as I said, this uh, agonizing reappraisal of the policies that led to the rise of China, there might be an opening created for a heightened struggle against white supremacy in particular, because you might have noted that Karan Skinner of the U.S. State Department, the director of policy planning, uh, said, and I would say falsely, that China presents a unique challenge uh, because it's so large and also because it's not, quote, Caucasian, unquote. I think that there is a looming conflict that is already unfolding between the People's Republic of China and the United States of America, and that has the possibility, an underlying possibility, of creating openings for the struggle against white supremacy, but right now it's too soon to tell. You write that when the socialist camp began to erode in 1989 because of the fall of the wall, apartheid rulers chose this moment adroitly to negotiate with the ANC that had been weakened globally precisely because of these developments, a decision which in turn set the stage for a compromise accords that to this day have hindered the ability of the post-apartheid regime to deliver radical transformation. Did the regime give up as little apartheid as problem? Are the problems, are the challenges that we are seeing in South Africa today due to a poorly negotiated deal that ended apartheid but really didn't? Well, I'm not so sure I would use the term poorly negotiated. I I think as noted, the ANC was at a disadvantage because its support was collapsing as the support for the apartheid regime, speaking of Washington, D.C., was preening on the global stage as the sole remaining superpower. Uh, this created an imbalance in terms of the negotiation. And then I quote Trevor Manuel, who was the first finance minister of independent South Africa post-1994 under Mandela, who says that not enough attention has been paid to the fact that up to the spring of 1994, there had been a systematic looting uh, of the coffers in Pretoria, that the cupboard was bare once the ANC took the reins of power. And once again, this is nothing new. Recall that in the late 1950s, when Guinea Conakry, under the leadership of Seiko Toure, a West African leader of uh, some historic importance, he argued correctly that the French were so irked by the giving up the reins of power and giving up the reins of colonialism that they took light bulbs, they destroyed toilets. They wanted to make sure that this new regime would have a very difficult uphill climb, which, of course, they have had since then. And so likewise, you had a similar process taking place in South Africa, And then it's been uh, uh, further uh, colored by the fact that uh, it's been difficult to negotiate 
with the scales tipped towards Washington and its conservatism is embedded at present with the 45th U.S. president, who has noted, uh, has expressed uh, some sympathy for the Freedom Front, the ultra-rightist uh, neo-apartheid force in South Africa. So that's where we sit now, but I, I don't expect the status quo to be uh, inevitable or, or eternal, not least because it's not sustainable. One last question for you, Gerald. We've been speaking with historian Gerald Horn, author of White Supremacy Confronted, U.S. Imperialism and Anti-Communism versus the Liberation of Southern Africa from Rhodes to Mandela. As the entire month of July is Listener Appreciation Month here on This Is Hell, culminating in our Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show on Saturday, July 27th, we want to thank Calvin for suggesting Gerald Horn to be back on our show. Calvin will get a secret mystery prize for having his guest that he suggested actually get on air. Gerald is John Jay and Rebecca Moore's professor of African American history at the University of Houston. Gerald was on our show last uh, year to discuss his book, The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism. And that book was selected as one of the best books to be featured here on This Is Hell in 2018. So go to our website, thisishell.com, and search on the name Horn, H-O-R-N-E, and you can find that interview. One last question for you. And as always, Gerald, our final guest for each and every one of our guests is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to ask or answer, or our audience will hate your response. Uh, you explain how uh, there's a, uh, or, or you, you quote, sorry, scholar, activist, and analyst Leopoldo Lebohango Fecco lamenting the usurpation and distraction of a colonial liberation struggle, meaning South Africa's, into a black-white issue, presumably mm. by the U.S., remains one of the greatest fissures in the South African liberation narrative. Mm. It is that removed African liberation, decolonization, and land restitution from the center of the debate. It translated the complexity of land occupation into race relations, the latter being a North American specialty, with the anti-apartheid movement more in keeping with the United States civil rights movement, a profound Ooh. setback. How is the United States civil rights movement a profound setback for the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa? Well, I think studying that quote which actually I'd forgotten. I guess that's why I write things down, because sometimes I don't remember things. <laughs> I, th I think studying that quote, I think, would be very educational and very revealing. That is to say that this was a national liberation movement in Southern Africa, particularly in South Africa, whereas in North America, this, because not least because of the purging of radical elements like Paul Robeson and W.E.B. Du Bois, the movement was channelized into a movement for civil rights and a movement for the eradication of Jim Crow, not necessarily a movement for class-based rights, such as making it easier to organize unions, uh, making it easier to get higher pay, and as the saying went at the time, and still holds, uh, people in the United States, black people, won the right to sit at a restaurant that did not necessarily have the money to pay the bill. And similarly, there's been an ongoing attempt to betray Mandela, who, after all, was the leader of the armed wing of the African National Congress, as a kind of Martin Luther King, that is to say, a nonviolent crusader, uh, when in fact, he led an armed resistance and traveled before being jailed for 28 years 
to seek military assistance in Ethiopia, Algeria, and elsewhere. And I think that quote that you just cited is a reflection of the fact that because of the weight that the United States wields internationally, and also wields in South Africa, that there has been a kind of revisionist history to make the anti-apartheid movement the equivalent of the civil rights movement in the United States of America. And I would say to the detriment of both, certainly to the detriment of Southern Africa, as that quote reveals, but I would also say to the detriment of we here in North America, because the heroic painting of the civil rights movement, and certainly it accomplished quite a bit, detracts from its weaknesses and its deficiencies, not least the going along with the purging of radicals like Du Bois and Robeson, which then narrows the possibility of this, this movement gaining greater and more glorious victory. Gerald, I really appreciate you being back on our show. This has been a fascinating conversation. We've had two conversations now with you in nine months. I've enjoyed both thoroughly. I'm really looking forward to having you back on the show. Historian Gerald Horn, author of White Supremacy Confronted, U.S. Imperialism and Anti-Communism versus the Liberation of Southern Africa. And again, we want to thank listener Calvin for suggesting... uh, Gerald as a guest during Listener Appreciation Month here in July. Thank you again, Gerald, for being back on the show. Truly appreciate it. Looking forward to having you back on the show in the future. Thank you for inviting me. All right. Take care. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. Welcome back. Imagining an alternative end of the world so you don't have to, this is hell. Back to history. It's now time for the first installment of Rinaldo Migaldi's Worst of Rotten History. His hand-picked rottenest episodes from the human past that serve a sort of dual purpose of explaining why this is hell and disabusing us of the liberal sacred cow that history is the inevitable unfolding of progress and human freedom. That's right, folks. History doesn't have a direction, doesn't have an arc that bends towards anything. It is what we make of it, and some of us have a lot more power to shape it than others. So with that, let's turn to the worst of rotten history. On July 30th, 1975, 48 years ago this week, Jimmy Hoffa, former president of the powerful and corrupt Teamsters Union, had an important had an appointment to meet with two mafia caprogrimes. I hope I'm pronouncing the Italian right, Ronaldo outside a suburban Detroit restaurant. Several witnesses saw him waiting in the parking lot and then leaving in a car with three other men. Hoffa was never heard from or seen again. He had recently been sprung from prison by President Richard Nixon. Nixon had commuted his sentence for 
a conviction on bribery, fraud, and jury tampering. It's now believed that Hoffa was trying to regain his former job as Teamsters president, but the mob had other ideas. After his disappearance, federal investigators searched for his remains on a farm in Wixom, Michigan that was owned by a Teamsters official. Later, Hoffa's former driver claimed that Hoffa was buried in wet cement in the foundation of Detroit's huge Renaissance Center, which was under construction when he disappeared and which is now the headquarters of the corporate headquarters of General Motors. More recently, Hoffa was rumored to have been shot to death in Michigan and his remains run through a cardboard shredding machine packed inside a 50 gallon oil drum driven to New Jersey and buried in a landfill there. But in spite of repeated investigations and testimony from diverse witnesses, a grand jury in Detroit never found enough evidence for an indictment. Investigators now say that the mystery of Hoffa's disappearance will probably never be solved. In another item of Ronaldo's worst of rotten history, this time on August 5th, 1858, 165 years ago this week for those counting at home, after having failed in several attempts, ocean-going engineers from Great Britain and the United States finally finished laying the first ever telegraph cable across the Atlantic Ocean. The 2,500-mile-long cable was made of five copper wires strapped in a casing of gutta percha, tar, and hemp. It lay on the undersea plateau two miles under the waves, and it connected a station in Ireland, at the time part of the British Empire and the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland, with another one in Newfoundland in Canada. After a few days of testing, Britain's Queen Victoria sent the ceremonial first message to U.S. President James Buchanan as my own aside, is widely regarded as the worst president in American history, and it's a pretty strong field for that title. The telegraph technology was so crude that her 98-word message took 16 hours to send. Within days, the transmission quality grew even worse, and engineers argued about how to fix it. Chief English electrician Wildman Whitehouse, it's quite the name, finally chose to pump an extra charge of 2,000 volts into the cable to get it working. But instead of fixing the problem, the shock burned the cable out, rendering it hugely, rendering the hugely expensive project worthless after only three weeks in service. Whitehouse's reputation was ruined though he would spend the rest of his life defending his decision. Many people suspected that the whole cable project had been a big hoax. 
and six years would pass before it was ever attempted again. Another aside, um, people on both sides of the Atlantic were quite accustomed to hoaxes. Hoaxes were a bit of a, uh, a pop cultural art form at the time. Finally, our third item in rottenest history, the worst of rotten history. This one coming from August 5th, 1896, 127 years ago. Near the town of Horatio, Arkansas, three African-American were killed, African-American men were killed, and eight were wounded when local white residents attacked a group of black railroad workers who were being brought in by the Kansas City, Pittsburgh, and Gulf Railway. The local whites were outraged by the railroad's intention to use black workers in their county. According to one account, they even claimed that it would be, quote, against their religion to permit them to desecrate the soil with pick and shovel, unquote. Though the railroad had sent 20 guards to protect the workers, the local white mob, which included immigrants from Hungary, Italy, and Sweden, managed to break into the workers' camp and start busting heads. The attack was part of a wave of race-related violence and harassment in Arkansas that would soon lead to the establishment of sundown towns across the state. These three hand-picked episodes from our past comprise the first installment of the Worst in Rotten History. More to come in this series next Tuesday. Thank you to Ronaldo Magaldi for sending these my way. And now it's the time you've all been waiting for, listeners. It's time for me to read your responses so far to this week's question from hell. And since the Facebook listeners got an unintended head start on the rest of you, I'm going to go to Facebook first. It looks like nothing is in on Twitter. Discord yet at the time of recording. This week's question from Hell is What's the creepiest thing about wherever you travel to regularly? What is the creepiest thing about wherever you travel to regularly? Elaine T <laughs> says Republicans. Amen. A lot of the places I travel to regularly are full of a lot more Republicans than I am accustomed to encountering. Adam A. responds, I commute downtown five days a week. The specter of capitalism that haunts Chicago's loop is a worrying apparition. Where the ghosts of, quote, no one wants to work commingle with the greedy spirit of quote whatever the market will bear 
And finally, Dan K responds concisely, Me. <laughs> you bring the creepy wherever you travel, don't you, Dan? That's what I like to see from our listeners. Keep the responses coming, listeners. You can post your answer to the week's question from hell on our Facebook page, Twitter, or X uh, page, Discord, and of course, Patreon. Every Wednesday, we will choose our favorite response and announce it on the air. The winner gets their pick of This Is Hell merchandise from our website, thisishell.com. We have new items in stock, and uh, we encourage you to peruse them. There's some cool stuff on there. I'm Will Ippen, producer on This Is Hell, filling in for Chuck Mertz while he is on vacation for the next two weeks. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Ronaldo, for your rottenest history submissions. Stay tuned, stay beautiful, and stay yourselves, listeners. I'll catch you all tomorrow, Wednesday, August 2nd when we continue our deep dive into the work and insights from prolific historian and listener favorite, Gerald Horn. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>